Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. Can I make a confession? Although I'm an avid reader, for most of my life, I haven't been an avid rereader. I'd hear those stories of people who read a favorite book over and over again and just scratch my head. How do they find the time? There are so many great books on my shelves already, so many unread ones, that if the publishing industry called a halt and stopped producing anything new, I still wouldn't have a chance of finishing this side of the grave. That's the way I used to think, but not anymore. I'm not sure what happened, but now I'm a rereader. Maybe it's just that my memory has deteriorated enough that I only have a vague idea of what's inside any book I finished more than a year ago. Or maybe I've finally come to understand the pleasures that re-readers have known all along. Whatever the reason, I'm grateful, because I find that there are layers to some of my favorite books I only grasped the second or third time around. It turns out Cameron has been doing a little rereading too, and it's prompted an interesting question about the complexities of grace. In this episode, prompted by Cameron's fresh reading of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's classic The Cost of Discipleship, and my cloudy recollections from years ago, we'll explore why it's so important to recognize that while grace may be free, it is anything but cheap. I realized recently that while I'm flying on planes, my mind is very sharp and clear, lucid, that I tend to be on full alert, probably because the cortisol is spiked, and, I, and I'm, I'm really attentive to what's going on. And that can be stressful, of course. I think some listeners will relate. But I've realized I can take advantage of it by reading and comprehending very difficult books. So last summer, I read a book by David Bentley Hart. I think it was The Experience of God. Very dense philosophical book. And remember so much of it. And while I want to, you know, credit the author for some of that, I think part of it was that I was just on, I was on, I was lucid and clear and it was a beautiful experience. So I recently flew out to Seattle and was experimenting with this, this thing. So I, I grabbed a book off my shelf before leaving and I just thought, well, I'm going to read something kind of dense and see if I can hang on to some of the stuff. And without too much thought, frankly, I just grabbed Dietrich Bonhoeffer's The Cost of Discipleship which I haven't read since high school. And I had a profound experience reading the first 75 pages or so of that book on the flight. And I wanted to, to sort of toss some of the things at you. I don't have too many formulated thoughts yet, but like I say, it was a kind of a profound experience with this text. And I think anyone who's read the cost of discipleship will remember his discussion in the the very beginning of that book about cheap grace and costly grace. We've been talking at Grace Presbyterian a lot about the importance of living out the Christian life. I mean, that's kind of a refrain for us that Christianity is not just a philosophy to subscribe to, but a whole set of, of practices and beliefs together. So this was on my mind as I was reading this. And Bonhoeffer says a few things that really struck me. And one is that this distinction between costly grace and free, excuse me, cheap grace, costly grace and cheap grace. 
Are you familiar with this distinction? Yes. Uh, you know, what you just described <laughs> is a story that I feel like I've heard from a lot of my friends that um, we all read The Cost of Discipleship really early on. It's like one of those books, sort of like Mere Christianity, that yeah. you're you're recommended and, and you've read. But it's also been a while. And so I feel like I've heard several times in the recent past uh, people either teaching through it or going back and rereading it and being not like surprised by what it says, but but maybe hit with more weight exactly than they had been to begin with. So that distinction between cheap grace and costly grace, I think it's fair to say that's one of the most sort of well-known concepts from the book. And I, I think, you know, just sketching the, the basic idea, cheap grace is this path of easy forgiveness. It almost taken for granted the idea that uh, because God saves us by grace, sin is not really something to be concerned about. And sacrifice is not really something you're called upon to make. Uh, everything about salvation has the stakes lowered by this way of thinking about grace. It de-emphasizes the cost of grace for Christ, I think, mm. but it also tends to give us a less exalted view of the what we might call the the demands of grace in our own lives like yeah. what what having experienced god's grace would mean to those who've experienced it because those who think of grace in this cheap way are often content to live lives that are essentially unchanged yeah. from one side of grace to the other so maybe that sketches just a little bit of the idea just a grace that 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 doesn't really change you much that just makes makes you feel like I, i'm good you know whatever the sin thing was that's squared away now and i can just move on with my life yeah. without much awareness of the cost yeah he he talks about at least in my translation of grace as a principle and that was interesting to me because he was critiquing this idea because he thought grace as a principle could actually kind of buttress cheap grace if you always assume well i know i'm going to be forgiven i know i'm going to be forgiven i'm i'm good all the time and god is just all all grace then i don't have to really worry about obedience and and i might try but it's no big deal if i you know if i sin all the time and and he says no that you know that's absolutely absolutely not the case and he has this quote he says only he who believes is obedient and only he who is obedient believes and I, I had to think about that a lot only he who believes is obedient and only he who is obedient believes so essentially Bonhoeffer is saying there is no faith without obedience and and he looks at all these examples in the in the gospels where Jesus goes around and he's encountering people and calling them to be his disciples and what he's trying to show Bonhoeffer is that 
the only kind of grace there is is costly grace and what it costs each and every individual is everything in every instance and and i guess as you know so i was reading through that and just sort of thinking wow he's so right and that is very convicting he's not saying jesus wasn't saying i don't you know the gospel writers weren't saying that well maybe this maybe following jesus will cost you some things it's essentially saying it will cost everyone everything and that's the that's the call <laughs> yeah yeah no that that's that's a good point because it it reorients us i think a lot of people who follow christ have it in their head that maybe if they're not fortunate god might put some suffering in their path right and they hope it's not going to go that way they hope that's not what's going to happen but maybe it will and if it does that's an exception to the norm mm -hmm. it's not what you signed up for but occasionally god tests people and maybe you'll have to go through something like that and i think that's a very surprising way for people to imagine it would look to follow Jesus, mm -hmm. right? When, when you think about what we talked about on an episode not too long ago, Calvin's little book on the Christian life, when he writes in his chapter on living under the cross about the fact that Christ lived this life of suffering, uh, he describes Christ's whole life as a kind of perpetual cross, and then says, why would we expect that our lives would be different when he lived his life in part as an example to us? And so I think that is setting real expectations. The hardness, quote unquote, of what Bonhoeffer is saying gels very well with the hardness of what Calvin is saying in that chapter. But it's out of all accord with what a lot of Christians today mean by grace. And I think if you talk this way to a lot of Christians, their reaction would be that, that you don't understand grace. Mm -hmm. In fact, I can assure you from firsthand experience, having had these conversations before, that, that in, in situations where, where I had to press the need for obedience and the need to endure suffering faithfully i've had people even knowledgeable people who should know better say well that doesn't sound like grace yeah yeah I, the example that comes to mind from from the book is peter hmm. so jesus encounter with peter well he has you know several of course but when Peter's out on the boat and Jesus appears on the water and calls calls him to you know to walk on the water and Peter's like what you know what's what's going on and and Christ calls him to have faith and to to walk out and and we know the story and what Bonhoeffer says is that Jesus' call to discipleship and in all of these other subsequent calls throughout the Gospels it actually sets up the condition where faith is possible. Hmm. because it demands everything so peter you know either you step out into the stormy lake or you don't 
but there's no there's no middle ground and you have to you know if you have faith you have to step out if you don't and and that that makes sense to me but then he makes another move and he says the reason that it's grace bonhoeffer says the reason that it's grace is because it's jesus doing the calling like that in itself is is enough for it to be a gracious call because he's he's calling these people to follow the the god of the universe the lord you know their their lord and that that's why the call is gracious and that's that's just a different view of grace to me i think like you were just suggesting we have this view of grace that it's just kind of god's benevolence god's care yeah it's occurred to me before that that we do when you talk about grace as a principle uh, we do oftentimes talk about grace as let's say a substance uh, it struck me very strongly in reading carlos Ayer's book war against the idols which is his history of the reformation that focuses on the idea of the restoration of worship, like the the quest to purify worship specifically. And in the early chapters, he describes how in the late medieval church, grace functioned as a sort of currency or commodity. You know, there was an idea that, you know, the past holiness of the saints had accrued all this extra grace that was sort of banked, as it were, and could be drawn upon. And there were all of these sort of, you know, pilgrimages you could go on or relics you could purchase or different things like that in the economy of grace, so to speak, that would give you grace, would infuse it. And we often talk about, you know, in that sort of Roman Catholic conception of the sacraments as, as grace being infused through that participation, but but in that world, there were a lot of things that sort of allowed grace to kind of get in in that kind of functional economic way. The analogy I thought of when reading that book was uh, atomic radiation. Yeah, that that you know they they almost acted as if being exposed to the right things long enough would give you enough grace that you would hopefully be saved, something like that. And again, in order to operate in a system like that, grace needs to be abstracted somehow from the one who gives it. That I think, I'm, I'm sure what Bonhoeffer is saying, what Bonhoeffer is saying is more complex than this, but one aspect to it is surely that, that it's, it's the offer from christ that makes it grace it's it's grace is not some freestanding thing like the force or whatever that's out there ready to be tapped into it's it's the the doing of it by jesus that makes it gracious Mm -hmm. but part of that invitation of his is take up your cross and follow me and we have a tendency to treat that as if those are two very different things. Yeah. Right? That that there's grace and then sometimes there's also obedience. But that's, you know, way downstream yeah. from grace and by looking at that invitation to act 
and seeing that that's sort of the invitation of grace, you can see that I can't really separate those things. Right. You know, obedience does have to be wrapped into it. And then from a reformation standpoint, it's just the question of well, what's behind that obedience. Yeah. You know, is, is that obedience a work that I'm offering up some merit of mine or is part of that gracious invitation that my obedience is also a work of the spirit in me. And that's, you know, as reformed Christians, we would affirm that it is. Yeah. Well, I want, I want to probe here a little bit because in my own life, I sometimes feel a tension between the vision of Christianity found in the gospels, which is what Bonhoeffer was mostly attending to and the vision of Christianity in Paul, mm. say Romans, which is also in keeping in my mind with the vision of Christianity given down from the reformers. So you yeah. have this very kind of theologically rich vision of grace and faith alone and Christ alone on the, on the, the Pauline side, let's say. And then you have the gospels, Jesus calling people to, to give up their lives and to follow him and, you know, grace as discipleship. I know that there's not that that's only an apparent contradiction, let's say, or an apparent tension, but do you feel that at all? And how would you, how sure. would you counsel someone say like myself struggling with that? Yeah. So uh, I would say, first of all, it's helpful to kind of put your finger on exactly what the phenomena is that you're observing. Right. So the, the thing that you're seeing as a tension or even like an apparent contradiction, I think there's another and maybe better way to describe it, which is it sometimes feels like they're talking about two different things. That there's a sense that people have in reading the Gospels that, okay, this is all about one thing. And then there's a sense they get in reading the epistles. I would argue not just Pauline. Yeah. Uh, that it's something else. So I think part of the reason for that has to do with the genres. You know, part of the reason is is that the gospels are a different kind of writing. But part of the reason, I think, as well, is that. What's happening in the epistles is a reflection on and a meditation on the implications of the action. Let's, let's say that like, the action comes first, and it's chronicled in the Gospels. There is some talking, some explanation, some teaching, but it's in the epistles that the contemplation of what it all means yeah. is played out. And so what's important if you can recognize th there, there's two different kinds of discourse is to look for where they connect, you know, and, and, and you do find those things. To me, one of the really helpful overlaps that we could look at would be in, in Acts chapter 20, I believe, um, it's Paul's speech to the Ephesian elders when he's departing, his farewell address. Because here you have Paul, who writes the Pauline epistles, but we're encountering him in the book of Acts, which is authored by Luke, and one of the gospel authors, and it's a narrative. Mm. 
but it has a speech within it. And if you read that speech, I think it becomes very difficult to imagine that Paul sees himself doing something different from what the Jesus of of the Gospel of Luke is all about. He talks about self-sacrifice. He talks about costly obedience for the sake of Christ. He talks about the need for the elders of the church to follow in that path because the church has been purchased by the blood of Christ. So it's it does represent a development, right? That that these are letters making sense of what has happened. Yeah. But there isn't a contradiction or a tension between them. It's just that they're filling in, let's say, different aspects of the question. Mm. The, the real problem, I think, comes because we tend to be selective readers yeah. of the whole. And there are Christians who like the Jesus of the Gospels and do not like the Jesus they find outside the Gospels, and just the reverse. Yeah, exactly. There are believers who like what they find in the epistles and do not like what they encounter in the Gospels. Now, to me, that's the contradiction. That's where the real tension is. It's in the believer who wants one Jesus and not the other, as if there's some, you know... (laughs) tension in him and that's where we find ourselves with i think that sense of the the misunderstandings of grace Mm -hmm. right so so there's the the believer who wants to think grace means that all that stuff in the gospels about obedience and sacrifice is neutralized and i don't need to worry about that because of grace And there's also another kind of person who thinks because of that call to obedience and sacrifice, all that theological mumbo jumbo that comes after, Mm -hmm. I don't need to worry about that. I just need to focus on living the right kind of life. Mm -hmm. And so to me, that's, you know, the, the, the genius of the cost of discipleship, I think, is that although it is pushing back against one of those errors more than than the other maybe um it does force you i think to to confront both yeah and it was one of the surprising things about the book for me at least that that section was i wasn't expecting it because i know bonhoeffer to be a lutheran theologian Mm-hmm. So I was expecting Luther, you know, yeah. faith alone, and you're good to go. That's kind of kind of the. But the message. even Luther, right, would wouldn't have discounted the need for obedience. You know, I think no. that's yeah. one of the the unusual things, and you can speak to this with an experience of Lutheranism. But I've encountered, to some extent, in in Lutheran theology, or certainly in Lutheran theologians, let's say, um, uh, like not quite knowing what to do with with the sort of antithesis between law and gospel and wanting to draw this very hard line, this firewall between the two, but also the call to obedience. And I don't actually know 
any serious Lutherans who don't believe obedience matters. I think it's a feeling that if we if we go down that path, we're going to be taking bricks out of the wall of grace mm-hmm. before you know it. Like it's it's a it's a desire to protect that that idea of salvation by grace that leads you to not to deny the importance of obedience, but to refuse to center it out of fear that that it will over it'll obscure yeah. the the reality of grace. And and I can understand that because I often feel the need to do something similar. I, th- I think that's right. Yeah. Well, I maybe want to end with a question for you. I heard you say in Sunday school recently, this is one of the vision talks maybe you were giving, you were talking about grace as a church needing to be a gracious church. Yes, right. <laughs> you said, you know, if we're going to have the name grace, then we should probably be gracious people. I, I completely agree for what it's worth, but I... Curious if you could just talk about what what does that mean in light of this conversation? That's a great question. So that vision talk, which is vision talk number four, if you want to go to the Grace website and and look it up, it's not very long. I think it's like nine minutes, but it's it's called a theology of grace must create a culture of grace. And I think it is relevant to what we're talking about here because when I say that a a, a church called grace needs to be gracious, I am talking about the call to obedience. You can't just say, I believe in love. You have to love. That's the difference. Right? You can't just say, we believe in grace. You have to be gracious. You have to put those things into practice. And I talk about that by contrasting the theology and the culture. Right? Because it's something I think we're all familiar with that, of course, we've all been in church communities that that talk about love, but then when called upon to show love, struggle to do that. We've all been aware of communities that talk about grace, and I think mean it. Mm-hmm. And if they had to articulate what grace is, oftentimes could do a very good job. And yet the culture of that community isn't gracious it, it's moralistic it's judgmental it's it's a lot of things that would lead people experiencing it for the first time to think i mean they say grace but i would never look here to find grace mm-hmm. now the reason for that the explanation i would say is is the absence of obedience right because you've you've heard that there's a call to love and you've said to yourself the important thing is to believe in the concept of love not okay now i need to love and and so if 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 you think of it that way you you see like okay yeah they do have to go together um in order to love i do need to know what love is and i do need to believe in love and i do need to to have like a right understanding uh, a god's eye perspective on love all of those things are necessary for me to love but it would be absurd to say that because i have those things i don't need to actually follow through in love Right, and yet we do act that way when it comes to grace and obedience. That we imagine that it's possible to have an understanding of grace, to have an understanding of the gospel, and for it not to change you, for you not to to have that uh, metanoia, that that turnaround, 
that uh, the gospel speaks of. And so that, I think, is something for our church that we really do need to cling to, that uh, there's no justification that doesn't lead to sanctification. Mm -hmm. And obedience in the life of the Christian looks like self-sacrifice. It looks like love. It looks like patience. It looks like all of those spiritual fruit that are not described to us as sort of optional adornments that it might be nice to pursue if you're not too busy with your everyday life, but really as natural consequences of the operation of grace within us. So we should see those things. You know, I, I guess maybe a way to sum it all up would be to just, you know, quote a maxim that we often use when we're thinking about the relationship between works and grace, where we will say something like, you know, salvation is not by works, but it is never without works. If you are living the quote-unquote Christian life with no evidence of the transformation of grace, you shouldn't presume that you actually have found grace. Mm -hmm. If there's no obedience in your life, you shouldn't presume that everything's okay. If you haven't turned from your sin, if you are not worshiping with the people of God, if you are not living a life of self-sacrifice, if you are not faithfully enduring, then you should ask yourself whether you've actually found grace. You know, I don't say that as like a, to induce anxiety, but just so that we have a right understanding of, of the reality of what it means to experience real grace uh, that costs you. But as we've seen in our look at Matthew 13 recently, what it costs you, you value differently. Because what you gain in Christ changes everything. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. This is this is really helpful. I I'm going to put it out there. If anyone listening would like to do a book study through the cost of discipleship, I for one am game. So that would be great. We already put out a similar call for (laughs) biblical critical theory, and hundreds of you have gotten back to us. uh, By which I mean none so far. Uh, I have had people ask me if there have been any takers. So it may okay. be that on biblical critical theory, they're waiting to see if someone yeah. else will will say yes first. But Cost of Discipleship, if you haven't read that book, that's one you definitely want to. And it, it it's a great one to read together, uh, like uh, Life Together, yeah. another great book of Bonhoff. is great to experience in community. So Cameron, thanks for asking these questions. I, I love reopening some of these things and and thinking through concepts that that we may be familiar with but might have forgotten the real significance of them it's it's a really good conversation to have thank you Thanks for listening to the commentary. We'd like to think that this podcast may be free, but it's anything but cheap as well. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org. Thank you.